In God's kind providence, this congregation has been blessed with many children. Uh, I've made dozens of hospital visits to the new moms and dads of the, our congregation over the years. And, and I cherish the privilege of being able to greet the new little ones in the hospital, uh, speak with the new mom and dad, read scripture, and pray. It's one of the many things that gives me joy as one of the elders of this congregation. When a new child is born, one of the questions that comes to the forefronts of our minds is, is what will the Lord do in his or her life? What will he do with this child? Can you imagine if the Lord told you in advance what he would do through the life of a child? And the Lord normally doesn't work that way. Uh, he, he normally makes us wait and see, but there are a handful of birth narratives, birth stories in the scriptures where the Lord tells us in advance what he will do in and through the life of a child. This morning, we're studying one of those birth stories. We're continuing a short but uh, special series of sermons where we're considering the story of Christmas from the vantage point of the Old Testament. This morning, we're especially going to be looking at Judges chapter 13, where we're thinking about Christmas according to Judges. Uh, last week, I mentioned that if it's your sense that, that Jesus' birth, his amazing life, his shocking death, and his even more shocking resurrection from the dead, is where the story of the Bible reaches its climax, then you're exactly right. But as you all know, because you all read stories, it is the rising tension of the story that helps us to appropriately take in the meaning of the story's climax. Last week, we went backwards to the book of Exodus to learn what Moses' birth taught us about Jesus' birth. And, and this week, we're going back to Judges to consider what Samson's birth teaches us about Jesus' birth. Jesus' birth, Christmas, is all about the arrival of the Savior of the world. Christmas is all about what this Savior would accomplish through his life, death, and resurrection from the grave. Jesus' birth, as we read about earlier in the service, was announced by angels. And they told us what he would do. He would save his people from their sins and reign as king. And this morning, we're going to compare and contrast Jesus and Samson's births with the hopes of deepening our appreciation of the arrival of God's final Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges. And Lord willing, we're going to study Judges chapter 13, which you can find uh, in the Bibles provided on page 213. 213 of the Bibles provided. And the chapters are the larger numbers there you'll see in the text. And the verses are the, the smaller numbers you'll see uh, in the, the passage. As you're turning there, let me just give us a little bit of the historical setting of the book of Judges and, and offer some background in the text that we're going to be considering together this morning. The book of Judges is frankly set in kind of a peculiar place in Israel's history, in the Old Testament history. God has created the world and formed a people for himself to display his character and glory to the nations. That's what he called the people of Israel for. He, he called this people, the people of Israel, out of slavery and, and brought them into the promised land of Canaan. And, and we knew that all of this was coming 
uh, given his promises to his people. But we've been waiting for God to establish his ruler over the people of Israel. The book of Judges recounts the period in Israel's history where she's living in the promised land without a king, without a ruler over Israel. It's a, it's a pretty messy history too, as the people of Israel often do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Israel's sin leads to oppression, which leads to the people of Israel crying out to God, which leads to God graciously raising up a savior and judge to rescue Israel once again. And they keep going through this pattern. History is, is always moving forward to the next event. But in this particular period, history appears to be almost moving backwards, as it were. Or, or better yet, it's at least moving in kind of a downward spiral as things get darker and darker in Israel's history. And the need for a king becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. And so the cycles keep moving on. After the death of God's judge, the people of Israel turn away from God again and they do what's right in their own eyes. And the cycle starts again with God raising up another judge, saving them, and they sin again. You know, Judges 12, if you look up there, you'll notice it, it ended by listing a series of judges who lived and ruled and then died. And this morning, as we turn to study Judges 13, we meet Samson. And if you know anything about Samson's life, then you know it's, it's much like our own. It's a mixture of good and bad. Uh, a mixture of faithful obedience and sinful disobedience. And what we'll learn about Samson in Judges 13, however, is that in one respect, he is very different from us. Samson is a savior in Israel's history. And in this regard, he points us forward to God's final Savior and judge, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who would be the judge who would die like all the rest, but unlike all the rest, who would get up from the grave to live and reign forever. Even Samson's birth narrative in Judges 13 has striking parallels to Jesus' birth narrative in the New Testament Gospels. And that's part of the reason we read from Luke's Gospel earlier this morning. To say that Samson is a savior means that Israel needs saving. And that's what we see in our first point. God knows our need. And you can find an outline of the points of this sermon in the, the bulletins provided. Um, so if you're taking notes this morning, this is the first point that we want to consider. God knows our need. And as we reflect on this, read Judges chapter 13, just first one, just first one for now. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Sadly, this, this phrase here, and the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, is all too familiar. The, the people of Israel did this again, that they did this again, reminds us that they've done it before. And in the context of the book of Judges, Israel's doing evil means that the people of Israel deliberately chose to turn away from Yahweh, from God, after he had saved them. They, they turned away from the one true and living God to serve other gods, false gods, gods made by the hands of men and made of wood and stone. This is evil. God sees it like he sees all sin. 
And he gives the people of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Now, in giving Israel over to her enemies, the Lord is disciplining the people that he loves. He is giving them over to their sin so that they will see the foolishness of their sin and turn again to him. Israel needs to see that she is in need of being rescued and being saved. And what is astounding is that the Lord ordained this for his people to live under the oppression of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, if I've done my research correctly, um, this is the longest duration of punishment and oppression recorded in the book of Judges. In fact, it's almost twice as long as any other recorded period of oppression in the book of Judges. We're even left to wonder if Israel really saw her need for salvation. On previous occasions in the book of Judges, we see that the people of Israel would cry out to the Lord for deliverance. But here in Judges 13, the people of Israel are silent. Not a word comes from their lips. No, instead, God graciously speaks a promise of deliverance before Israel even spoke a word of cry. Now, Israel might not have known her need, but God did. And this is what we see really in verses 2 through 7. Read, read Judges chapter 13, verses 2 through 7 now. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no, no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now in these verses, it's not hard to see God's promise of a Savior for Israel. The announcement of this Savior came through a special messenger. The angel of the Lord delivered this message. And this may very well be a theophany, a physical, visible, divine manifestation of God's presence. In, in some respects, the angel's appearance was ordinary. For Manoah's wife there in verse 6, you'll notice, calls him a man of God. But in other ways, she also recognized that this man was very awesome because he was like the appearance of the angel of God. Now, more light will be shed on this, on this, who this messenger is in the verses that follow. But, but for now, what we need to know is that the news of this special announcement came through a special messenger. This Savior would come through a special womb. Manoah's wife, as you notice there, she was barren, just as Sarah and Rachel were barren. She had no children, nor could she have children if she wanted to. But God wanted her to have children. In, in the scriptures, barrenness is always cause for great grief. And 
Manoah's wife was no doubt filled with sorrow. It's, it's almost impossible to say why God would choose to open the womb of one woman and not another, except that God is using the trial of infertility to draw a couple closer to himself. And though that may be true, it is still hard. Wrestling with the sorrow of infertility, with barrenness, is terribly difficult and, and tempting even at times. Those in this struggle might be tempted toward bitterness and jealousy and perhaps even idolatry. This, this terrible struggle is common. Uh, according to, to research, between 12 and 17% of couples struggle with infertility. And this tells us that we ought to be careful about how we speak about the gift of children. We should certainly be on guard against joining in with our culture's scorn of childbearing. Our culture thinks about children often as an accessory, sometimes as a means to self-fulfillment. In, in this view, children are the gift bag and not the gift. And this is far from true. Children really are a gift from the Lord. And so parents must not make flippant remarks about the difficulty of parenting. We can and should talk about the difficulty of parenting, but we must not talk about it as though it's a difficulty that we don't want. What some couples wouldn't give to have that difficulty. We need to love those in the midst of the struggle of infertility. And part of that will include not making remarks that assume that childless couples are intentionally childless. We need to come alongside those whom we know to be struggling with infertility and express our love for them and encourage them. Given uh, the, the, the grief that Manoah's wife was no doubt experiencing through barrenness and the grief that Israel was experiencing through the hand of the oppressive Philistines, we can see that there is a double kindness of God here in the promise of Israel's Savior. As God filled her womb with new life, God would set into motion his plan to bring her grief to an end, as well as his plan to bring an end to Israel's grief through the oppression of the Philistines. God could have chosen a woman who did not struggle with barrenness, but he didn't. He chose Manoah's wife. In God's kindness and mercy, he knew her heart, her grief, and he chose her. This special son would be a special gift to his mother. She would treasure these things in her heart. And he would be a special gift to the people of Israel too. Because this son would be a special gift, God called for special preparation to be made for this special child. As verse 5 says, he was to be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And this meant that Manoah's wife would need to be careful about what she ate and what she drank. And it meant that uh, her son needed special instruction and grooming after his birth. The, the details of the Nazarite vow can be found in Numbers chapter 6, verses uh, 1 to 21. And there were, there were three basic components, really, to the Nazarite vow. Or, or I should say, three things someone committed to the vow was to abstain from. First, they were to abstain from alcoholic beverages. To, secondly, to abstain from cutting your hair during the period of the vow. And, and third, to abstain from having contact with a dead body. The purpose of taking on this Nazarite vow was to be set apart for special service to God. 
This child's life, his whole life, every aspect of it, was to be set apart and dedicated to God. And he was to be set apart and dedicated to serving God for his whole life. Notice that the end of verse 7 makes this clear. It says the child should be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now, I don't think Christian parents are, are required by Scripture to maintain a Nazarite vow or to hold their children under a Nazarite vow. This was clearly a unique and special case in Israel's history. This special child had a special mission. The Lord was going to use him to save the people of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. God's people were in need of salvation. And so he promised to send a Savior to meet their need. Judges 13 teaches us that God not only knows our needs, but that he also answers our prayers. And this is the second point that we want to consider together this morning. God answers our prayers. And as we consider this truth, read Judges chapter 13, verses 8 through 14 with me. Judges chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? and What is to be his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. In the first part of the chapter, the angel of the Lord had only spoken to Manoah's wife, and she faithfully relayed the good news to her husband. At the outset of these verses, we see Manoah calling out to the Lord in prayer. Notice in verse 8 what his requests are. He asks for the man of God to return again, and he asks for more instructions on how to raise this promised child. Now, every Christian parent prays for wisdom from God on how to raise their coming children. I've often smiled at uh, first-time parents when they tell me that they're excited and scared uh, about raising this child who's coming. I don't know how to raise a child, they say, and I've been there too, filled with fear and uncertainty, and some days I'm still there, and that's why we pray. We pray for God's wisdom and help in our parenting. We can imagine Manoah's fear being heightened all the more because he knows that this promised child really is special. He really will be unique. So shouldn't Manoah get some more practical advice and counsel and instructions from God for this special child? I so appreciate the way verse 9 opens. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. God heard his trembling voice just as he hears ours. God answered Manoah's prayer just as he answers ours. He's a loving, heavenly father. He delights to hear our prayers and to answer them. 
God always, always answers our prayers. And he often does it in ways which we don't expect. But he always does it in ways that are best. Manoah made this request, but the angel of God came to Manoah's wife again and not to Manoah. I'm sure that this was humbling to him. But if you know a good bit of, of biblical history, you know that some of God's most important biblical revelations and promises he gave first to women. We certainly see women playing a, a prominent role in Jesus' birth narrative, and they played a, a, a crucial role in communicating the good news that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Remember, the women were the first to the tomb. If the serpent first spoke to a woman as a means to see man fall, then how appropriate is it that God spoke to a woman to see man rise? Still, uh, Manoah's wife clearly knows that her husband had petitioned God to send his messenger again and that he was anxious to speak with him. And that's why she ran quickly home to tell her husband that the messenger was back. She was clearly a faithful helpmate to Manoah. And when Manoah does meet the angel of God, he first gets confirmation that he's the messenger who, who uh, first spoke with his wife. And then in verse 12, he asks the question that has, has been burning in his heart. Notice, notice how faith-filled Manoah's question is. There in verse 12, he says, Now, when your words come true. Do you see that faith? When your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? Manoah believed the promise that the angel first delivered to his wife. He believed that he would have a son, but he wanted to know more. He wanted to know practically what it would mean for his son to live as a Nazarite and, and what it would mean for his son to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. For that was his mission. And did you notice the angel's answer to Manoah? Wasn't it strikingly similar to what he said to his wife? In fact, there's no difference between what the angel told Manoah's wife and what he told Manoah. The angel hasn't given Manoah any new information that he was looking for. And, and this feels like the kind of answers, answer that we get to some of our prayers, doesn't it? It, it feels like a non-answer. But it is an answer. God is simply calling Manoah to trust him. He's saying, Manoah, raise your son as a Nazarite, be a, a faithful parent, and leave his future to me. Aren't we a lot like Manoah? Don't we often want to know more of what God has in store in some particular area of our lives? God is opening a door in our lives, and it seems like we should walk through it, but, but what is on the other side, and, and what should I do when I get there? So often we want to know beyond what God has revealed. But often, perhaps even normally, He only reveals enough for us to take the next step. So we pray. He answers. And we walk in faith, trusting the light that He has graciously provided before us. Children, youth, young adults. I don't know if you've thought about this, but your parents are continuing to learn to trust God each and every day. I know that we as adults um, like to seem like we know everything, and to be sure we do know a good bit, but we don't know everything. We don't know everything, but God does. And so each day we're endeavoring to entrust our lives to God. And part of the reason that your parents pray 
is to express their dependence upon God and to ask Him to strengthen them in the faith as they walk. Let me encourage you to talk with your parents or a mature Christian friend about how they've seen God answer their prayers. Perhaps there has been a time in their lives when God has answered their prayers in a way that was even better than what they asked. And let me encourage you to not only talk with your parents about prayer this afternoon or this evening, but let me also encourage you to pray with them because God answers the prayers of His people. God knows our needs. He answers our prayers. And He also patiently bears with us. This is the next point that we want to consider together. God bears with us. And as we consider this truth that God bears with us, read Judges chapter 13, verses 15 to 23. Verses 15 to 23 now. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And, and Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering in our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. In these verses, Manoah's encounter and conversation with the angel of the Lord continues. He, he pleads for the angel to stay and for the angel to give him his name. And the angel's response to Manoah's request for his name is especially intriguing. He says there in verse 18, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? When the angel says, why do you ask my name? He's basically saying, shouldn't you know who I am by now? Who else can open a barren womb? Who else can save Israel? It is in this light, the angel's response of I am to Manoah in verse 12 is all the more intriguing. When the angel says that his name is wonderful, the angel is saying that, that knowing my name is, is beyond comprehension. This expression of the incomprehensible nature of God is akin to what we read in Psalm 139, verse 6, where the psalmist is overwhelmed by the power and character of God. And he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. We can know God truly, but we cannot know him fully. We are finite, and He is infinite. We have only just begun to know our God, and we will spend all of eternity getting to know Him. And even then, we will never know Him fully, for He will remain infinite and we finite. 
And what a joy it is and will be to increasingly know our God each day that He gives us on earth and each day that we spend with Him in eternity. Here is, is the Lord bearing with Manoah's timid faith. Manoah believes the words of the angel will come true, but he wants additional confirmation. And the Lord graciously gives Manoah additional confirmation when the angel of the Lord went up in the flame. And this, this is a unique event in redemptive history. It's not going to be repeated in our lives, for the Lord isn't promising to send a Savior through us. He's already done that through his chosen vessel. When the angel of the Lord disappears in the flame, Manoah is certain beyond all doubt. And he's also terrified. He says to his wife in verse 22, We shall die, for we have seen God. And Manoah, here he's of course repeating the truth of Exodus chapter 33 verse 20, where God said, Man shall not see me and live. Manoah is struck to the core. And yet there is his faithful wife right by his side, comforting and reassuring him and calling him to use a bit of logic. I love this. It's, it's almost like she's saying, um, honey, if the Lord was going to kill us, then he wouldn't have accepted our offerings and made these promises to us. And she's absolutely right. Manoah's wife is a wonderful woman of faith and Manoah has much to learn from her. And yet we shouldn't be surprised by Manoah's response. Almost universally in the Bible, when people come to recognize that they've been visited by God, they freak out. And, and there's something appropriate about the response of sheer terror. Manoah's wife was no doubt a bit afraid too. She fell to the ground with her husband, according to verse 20. What they're both coming to know about God is that he's not safe, but that he is good. He bears with the weaknesses of his people he gives them everything they need to trust and obey Him. He gave them His Word, and now He gives them a sign that His Word is sure. In reading this portion of Scripture, I was struck by how highly the Lord speaks of His own name. It's wonderful, He says. Do, do we regard the name of the Lord? Do we regard the Lord as wonderful? Do we, do we regard the Lord as very awesome? As Manoah's wife said earlier, how highly do we think of God? We ought to think of God as highly as He thinks of Himself. He thinks of Himself as the Most High God. And He is not wrong to do that. For nothing and no one is higher than Him. In our praise of God, in our thinking about God, we need to work at exalting Him. He has made His name great among the nations, and we should make His name great in our lives too. Let me encourage you to, uh, to take a psalm or some other portion of Scripture and write out a prayer of praise to God. Practice praising Him. And it will become easier and easier to praise Him more naturally in your everyday life. Let us, like Noah's wife, recognize the greatness of our God. Only when God is highly exalted in our hearts will we see the true humility of the Savior who condescended to be with us and who even now bears with us by the Holy Spirit. God's transcendence, His greatness is not opposed to His imminence, His nearness. God's greatness is not opposed to His nearness. No, we, we only come to know His greatness through His nearness, but we must be careful not to allow His nearness to eclipse or overshadow His greatness. 
We can't allow our thoughts of God to become safe or mundane. Praising God helps us to remember His true and glorious character, while at the same time, encouraging our joy in the truth that He is God with us. God bears with us. Let's turn now and consider our final point. God keeps His promises. We saw God make promises very early on in the chapter, but does He keep them? In Judges chapter 13, verses 24 to 25, we see that God keeps His promises. And as we consider this truth, read read those verses. Read verses 24 and 25. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Menahadan between Zorah and Eshtol. Now these verses... They contain five interconnected truths, which reveals that God keeps his promises. First and foremost, we see that the woman bore a son, just as God promised. Secondly, we learn that she named him Samson. Now, Samson's name, his name means little son, as in in the sun that rises every day, S-U-N. Sun that rises each day, gives light to the earth. You see, this little boy brought lightness to her life that had so long been clouded by the darkness of barrenness. But he would also be a light in this dark period of Israel's history, for he would begin to lift the dark cloud that was the Philistine oppression. The author of Judges also tells us that he grew and that the Lord blessed him. It seems that he enjoyed good physical health, a good home, and we hope a good relationship with the Lord as he continued to live under the Nazarite vow. Most importantly, verse 25 tells us that the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. In other words, the Lord was beginning to equip him and prepare him for accomplishing the mission that he was to undertake on the Lord's behalf. With the resting of the Spirit of the Lord upon him, Samson was being prepared for the purpose of beginning to save God's people from their enemies. God was keeping his promises. Judges 13 contains A fascinating birth narrative, doesn't it? God's people are living under the oppression of an enemy, and so he plans to raise up a savior for his people. An angel of the Lord appears to a lowly woman and her husband, and he promises to send them a son. Not only that, but he promises that he will begin to save Israel. He was to be holy and set apart for this special task from the day of his birth to the day of his death. They are fearful, but obedient. The Lord keeps his promise and gives them a son. A son who brought light to their life and offered Israel hope and light in the darkness. He grew, and God's blessing and favor rested upon him. The Spirit of the Lord even stirred within him as he prepared to set about his mission of delivering his people. This is the nativity story, the Christmas story, according to the author of Judges. And it contains uncanny parallels to the nativity story of the Lord Jesus Christ. Samson is unmistakably a type pointing forward to Jesus Christ. And and I want to make this evident uh, by several connections to the New Testament Gospels. Consider these similarities and connections. And some of the verses I want to mention I think are, are listed there on your handout. Consider that just as God's people were living under the oppression of an enemy in Samson's day, the Philistines... 
So God's people were living under the oppression of an enemy in Jesus' day. As we thought about last week, Matthew and Luke both note the rule of the evil king Herod in their nativity accounts. But Jesus came not to overthrow a Roman enemy, but a far more sinister and cruel enemy, the enemy of sin and death. The Philistines had oppressed the people of Israel for 40 years, but the enemy of sin and death has been a cruel oppressor of God's people from almost the very beginning of history. Just as an angel spoke to Manoah and his wife about his plans to to raise up a deliverer, so an angel spoke to Mary and Joseph. And just as Manoah and his wife were timid and afraid, so were Mary and Joseph. The angel had to tell Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. Luke tells, tells us that Mary was troubled and the angel comforted her, telling her not to be afraid in Luke chapter 1, verse 30. Both sets of parents were fearful and obedient. Manoah's wife was clearly a lowly woman. If nothing else, the fact that we're not even given her name makes that evident. Mary, too, was lowly and humble, as Luke chapter 1, verse 48 makes clear. Manoah's wife and Mary were unexpected choices to send his deliverer through. But that's the way our God works. He chooses the lowly and the despised so that he might exalt his strength. From Samson's life, from birth to death, was to be marked out through this Nazarite vow. And Jesus' life was truly marked out through his vow to do nothing but what his father told him. John chapter 5, verse 19. While Samson regularly disobeyed God, as you could see if you kept reading past Judges 13, Jesus was obedient to God the Father even unto death. Jesus was holy and set apart from sin. Just as Samson grew and God's favor and blessing rested upon him, so we read, so we see this in Jesus' life as well. In Luke chapter 2, verse 40, we're told, And the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And just as the Spirit of God stirred within Samson as he was beginning his work of saving Israel, so Jesus announced in Luke's gospel that God's Spirit was resting upon him. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Just as the little son, just as Samson, would provide light to his family and to the people of Israel in his day, so Jesus, in the words of John chapter 1, verse 9, would be the true light which enlightens everyone. But perhaps the most precious parallel between Judges 13 and the Nativity accounts in the New Testament Gospels is found in God's promises to the parents of these two boys. Just as God specifically told Manoah and his wife that their son would begin to save Israel, so God told Joseph and Mary that their son would be a savior. Indeed, that he would be the final savior. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, we read, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. To Joseph, the Lord made this precious promise. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, Samson would only begin to save his people from their enemies. But Jesus would not only begin that work, 
he would complete it. Friend, if you are here this morning and you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is the good news that Judges 13 points forward to. The good news that God holds out to you. That God would send his one and only most beloved son to save his people from their sins. And the truth is, is that you are in need. We are all in need. We need to be saved. Not from the earthly enemies like the Philistines, but from the enemies of sin and death. You see, God promised our first parents, Adam and Eve, that should they disobey his good commands of the wages, the cost that was due to their sin, due to their disobedience, was death. Disobedience is what the Bible calls sin. And that first sin not only ushered in the punishment of physical death, but it also ushered in the punishment of eternal death in hell. When we sin against God, we sin against a being that is not only perfectly holy, just, and good, but we also sin against an infinite and eternal being. And so we deserve to be punished infinitely and eternally in hell. But the good news is that God not only promised to send his son, but that he sent his son to deliver us from our sin and the punishment due to it. Jesus was born to live a perfectly holy and righteous life to God in our place, to live how we have not. And Jesus was born to die. His mission was to save his people, to die in their place, taking the punishment that was due to their sins upon himself. And it was not only his dying that crushed the power of sin and death, but it was also his being raised in the grave three days later. And now Jesus, he calls all of us to repent, to turn away from our sin and to turn to him in faith. He calls us to believe that he is our savior. He calls us to believe that he lived for us the life that we have not lived. To believe that he died for us the death that we deserve to die. And to believe that he was raised for us so that we might be accepted as righteous in his sight. So friends, turn from your sins and come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith today and be saved. And if you want to know more about what it means that Jesus is God's promised Savior and what that saving work means, please do come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. We'd love to talk to you about this good news that Jesus is God's promised Savior. God promised that he would send a Savior, and he did. And our Savior promised that he will return, which is what I want us to think about as we conclude. You know, Samson's birth story is remarkable in and of itself. It it certainly reveals God's compassion and care for Manoah's wife, But more than that, it reveals God's compassion and care for his people. How much more do we see God's care for his people in the birth of Jesus Christ? I don't don't know if you enjoy birth stories in general or not, but if you're a Christian, you must enjoy this birth story. You must enjoy Jesus' birth story. This is the time of year that we as Christians celebrate and rejoice in the coming of Jesus Christ. And, And most often we think of his birth, and it's appropriate for us to do so. As we begin to conclude this Christmas season, 
I want to urge us not only to remember and rejoice in His birth, to see God's great love for us in sending His Son, but also to anxiously anticipate another advent, the other advent of our Savior, to look forward to His second coming. As we look forward to our Savior's second advent with great expectation, we know something of the anticipation that Manoah and his wife knew as they waited for the arrival of Samson. And something of what Mary and Joseph knew in waiting for the arrival of Jesus. We should look to them and see how they trusted the Lord as they waited and do the same. We should faithfully look forward to Christ's second coming. For it is as sure as his first. Let's pray together.